Star jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast aye, shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. We should be able to hear the magnetic resonance field. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Good morning, or afternoon, or evening, whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed, welcome to the Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time as we delve into science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. I'm your host, Gene Turnbow. With me is my co-host, Susan Fox. Ook! And uh, our guest today is John Kentner. He's the producer of The Turtle Moves, Remembering Terry Pratchett. It'll be a documentary made by friends and fans of Sir Terry Pratchett, remembering how his words in the Discworld impacted their lives. Welcome, John. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. What a great project. You know, it, 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 it really is. And it's I'm excited about this project, uh, even though it is going to affect my finances minimally to negative. But uh, it, it it's such a how do I put it? Uh, I was um, brought in to help with the 2011 Discworld convention, and that was my first time actually meeting Sir Terry. And the thing that really resonated with me, and I've I've been to a lot of conventions all over the world, game conventions, comic conventions, science fiction conventions, but I had never seen the relationship with the fans that Terry Pratchett had. What a great fandom it is, too. It, it, it's an incredible fandom. And and there is so little fighting amongst the fans that when it happens, it's jarring and noticeable. As opposed to a lot of other fan groups, I see politics all the time. And you just don't think anything of it. But these these groups, whether they're the Australians, Irish, the the UK fans or the Americans... There's just a lot of love there, to, to, to sound trite, but it really is. It's no, a very it, loving group. It really is. When when Sir Terry passed away this March, the whole it was like a big group, worldwide group hug on the Internet. It, it was. I had uh, friends in Australia that I didn't realize were Pratchett fans um, just kind of throw out the giant ook and... Uh, <laughs> It became, a, again, a love fest. It's like, oh, my God, I got to meet him. Oh, I got to meet him, too, at a signing at such and such bookstore. And every, everybody shared their really wonderful stories. And that was just just a very cool thing. Uh, and, and, you know, when somebody passes, normally it's we like to go into the big grieving mode. And everybody is sad and hides. And it was just nice to share stories and uh, I prefer to remember people that way. Definitely. And that's why we use the tagline um, on, on our art, you know, from uh, Going Postal. Um, mm-hmm. uh, 
pull that up in just a second here. Uh, the, the line is, do you not know that a man is not dead while his name is still spoken? That's the idea behind a plugin for websites that was released uh, shortly after Sir Terry passed on, uh, which is the, it's called the Clax plugin. Yes. And, oh, the GNU. Okay. Yeah, the GNU. The smoking GNU. Yeah, and it, uh, what it does is it adds Sir Terry's name to the header of the website. It's not seen, but his name is continually passed through the internet from one site to another, to another, to another. It's, it's in a, like a little semaphore square up in the, you know, in a quiet place up on your, uh, your menu bar. And yes, the, uh, Krypton Radio website is a participant in the clacks. You know, I, I will double check with our webmistress and make sure that uh, the North American Disc World Connection website is using that. I suspect they are, uh, but I, w- I will make sure because that's, that's just such a very cool thing. It would be appropriate. It, it, absolutely. Absolutely. So where have you started production on the documentary yet? Uh, we have not started production. Uh, we are in our final week of uh, fundraising on Kickstarter, and we're actually getting very close. Uh, so... We actually have the hopes of getting into our stretch goals, which would be nice because that's all about increasing production values and uh, licensing interviews mm-hmm. from the BBC or wherever. And you just have just a few days to go. And um, um, Yeah, uh, we just have just a few days to go. Uh, we are closing shop on August 12th. Mm-hmm. At, uh, at, uh, it's going to be 516 uh, Pacific time in Seven seven sixteen where I am in, in the Midwest, and by that point we have to meet, reach our modest goal of six thousand, which um, literally. And you're only a, about a thousand dollars away as we're recording this on Wednesday. So right. by Saturday, when people start hearing this, you should be hitting the stretch goals by then. And if you're not, guys, ladies, and gentlemen, and gentle beings of the radio audience, please support this one because yeah. it's worth it, and you'll see us. <laughs> and and, and I, I've got to say, since we're on the Kickstarter campaign, um, one of our big supporters uh, is the uh, nice lady who's running the uh, Discworld exhibit at uh, the upcoming Worldcon, Sasquan, uh, Patty Panic, And she just made a donation to the top tier levels of our, uh, of our uh, campaign. Nice. Thank uh, you, Patty. Any, anybody who donates five, or pledges $500 or more, she will custom make a posable fiegel, six-inch fiegel. A fiegel, Crivens. Crivens, ah, yes. Yeah, big jobs. And anybody who donates at the $1,000 level and joins on as an executive producer, they get executive producer credit. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are also going to get a uh, hand-picked item out of the Discworld exhibit. And she has some custom salves, a custom broom for Nanny Og. Just very beautiful items, and she will pick it out, and she's very excited to do this. Well, I plan to cosplay Nanny Og sometime during the convention, so we have to do pose some some pictures there. We will have to get some pictures and or some video. Okay. Uh, I am am right now, and and this is why we're keeping, uh, why the budget, we were able to do this for 6,000, is we're going to be doing most of our filming at, at Sasquan, because that's our next best chance for some years, it looks like, to get a large gathering of Discworld fans in one place. Isn't there a a Discworld convention? 
Uh, there is not one this year that I am aware of. I think uh, they had to cancel Wadfest. <laughs> yeah, uh, the North American Discworld Convention had been doing odd-numbered years. Their last convention was in uh, 2013, and for various reasons, they weren't able to put something together and decided to concentrate on a Discworld gathering at Worldcon. Which, Which given, is nice because you get all the same people, the, the quality uh, companionship on someone else's nickel. Uh, absolutely. And, and uh, <laughs> Terry loved Worldcon. Yes, he did. That's where we met him first. So it, 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 it's absolutely fitting uh, in, in this, the year of his passing, to uh, concentrate on Worldcon and celebrate Terry there. And that's something that, that uh, Worldcon wanted to do anyway. Uh, so being able to, to combine forces like that is just this wonderful opportunity. And it's a great chance for me to go one place with my camera and get some videos, uh, just people cosplaying, get the exhibits, get the displays, and get people talking about their stories. And if I can get authors talking about their stories or just fans in or out of costume. And there's some great stories out there. Uh, and, and, and people are talking to me, uh, sending me email. And I, this one lady just sent this beautiful letter uh, that I got yesterday or the day before and talking about she made a large donation and it was for her son uh, mm -hmm. because her son wasn't well, evidently was having problems learning to read. Mm -hmm. But it was finding Discworld that gave the kid the urge to want to learn to read. Oh, that's fabulous. Oh, wow. And, nice. and he's, he's now a college, he's like 24 in college now. Uh, and he, they will both be at the convention, and I want to sit down with both of them and get as much as they want to tell me. Um, stories like this, this is this is why I want to make a film like this. Well, the right author will save a life, whether he knows it or not. Uh, exactly. And, and You hear I, I, about I, that I with Harry Potter books. You don't hear about that with the Discworld. No. No, no. I, I've only heard of, of a story... Uh, like this once, and that was I was working on a documentary about the history of role-playing games, and I happened to interview uh, Jordan Weissman, who at the time was just starting up Wiz Kids and had just sold off uh, his interest in FASA. Mm -hmm. And so he's done quite well from from both of those companies, but he grew up a dyslexic child in Chicago. And in the 70s, dyslexia wasn't really taught well. They would just put in with remedial readers and left to fend for themselves. Because nobody but, really understood what was going on. Exactly. But a friend of his introduced him to Dungeons & Dragons in the mid-70s. And he was so excited about this, he had to learn to read just to be able to do well. Yeah. So he forced himself to read, and now he's a really successful guy. You know, well, tell and, us about your uh, your um, uh, your other. Let's cut that, okay? <laughs> okay. Tell us about your gaming documentary. That sounds interesting too. Okay, um, actually, that is a, a project that was started ooh, about two thousand, uh, and my co-producer was a gentleman by the name of Dave Arneson. Mm -hmm. And for your your listeners in the know. Dave Arneson and Gary Gygax were the original creators of Dungeons & Dragons back in 1970. Mm. It's garbled uh, for those of us that remember. <laughs> uh, 70, I, 73, I think? Uh, 74, 74. January of 74 was the publication date. I think 73 but, was probably chain mail or something. 
Uh, actually, Chainmail uh, goes back to, I want to say it goes back to 69. Mm. And I know that the Blackmore group, which was Dave Arneson's group, was playing Dungeons and Dragons, or whatever they were calling it at that point, as early as 1968. Goodness. Uh, so it's been around a lot longer than we realize. And if you want to get really technical, uh, M.A.R. Barker of Empire of the Petal Throne, Tecumel, had them beat. He was playing a very rudimentary version of Tecumel as far back as the 1930s. Good heavens. Wow. And, and that's something that's utterly lost, and, and, and nobody knows about that. Uh, so I actually have some interviews with uh, M.A.R. Barker. I have interviews with uh, Gary Gygax and uh, Dave Arneson. I, I seem to be the only person that has any interviews of Dave. Um, but our mission at the time was to uh, gather up and tell the story of the origins of the role-playing game industry in the United States. And we interviewed as many people as we could uh, for technical reasons and then other, other things, including uh, Mr. Arneson dying of cancer. Uh, the project got waylaid and shelved. And it is my hope in the very near future, like as soon as this one, as soon as uh, the Terry Pratchett documentary is done, to start fundraising and get that back uh, back in uh, in order and, and get it finished. Good. Because there's a, there's a lot of stuff that needs to be done on that because uh, it was all shot in standard definition. Oops. So we <laughs> we need to up-res it. And I actually have uh, contact with somebody who's really good at up standard definition to high-res or high-def. Um, so he's excited to help. Um, there's a lot of interviews to update because I think we shot our last interview in like 2004, 2005. Mm-hmm. Right yeah, well, at, right most of the these people, a number of these people are no longer available. So a n- yeah. number of these we'll people are no longer available. Uh, a number of them have changed their opinions on some things. Um, you know, Steve Jackson has been through some stuff since the last interview, mm, really? and, and Mike Stackpole has been through some stuff. They've all got valid things to say, uh, and and there was some stuff brought up, Gary. Dave and Frank Menser all discussed the use of computers and the internet. You know, and, and 10 years ago, the internet was not what it is today. It, it wasn't as ubiquitous. And they were talking about that's where the future of role-playing lies, and now we can show that. Yeah, they weren't and, wrong. <laughs> and, and, and we can show that uh, from the massive multiplayer games, which we can argue whether they're role-playing or not. But if you look at something like the virtual worlds of Second Life, mm-hmm. uh, that is role-playing at its purest. Oh, yes. That's that's true. It is, they are. Can, I mean, it is. You can really be anything you can just imagine. You, you know, uh, ha- having been in there, I, I, I've met people who are 24-7 cats. Uh, <laughs> Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, you can be anything you want. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we got started with Krypton Radio as, a, as an audio stream for, for uh, our Second Life sim. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> and then we kind of got DJs, and then we kind of got show, talk shows. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, yeah. <laughs> so that, that, that doesn't take long to spiral out of control. It doesn't, does it? And, and that, now you're a virtual media empire. Well, and... And I don't get to 
Second Life, but once or twice a month, which is a little sad because I had friends there. I still have friends there. You know, and I am willing to bet, uh, just with my experience with the community, that when you pop back in, those that remember you, it will be almost like you never left. That's uh, true. That's true. There, there are some very good people in Second Life. Uh, I was peripherally involved in the uh, the performance, the, the mu- live music performance community. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got to know a lot of those people fairly well. We'll have to gossip about those later. There's oh, absolutely. Also, there's also Fantasy Grounds on Steam. It's... Uh, um, it's a platform for uh, uh, for running role-playing games of all sorts, and there is a Dungeons & Dragons template for it. Oh. And uh, people can there, play, and so you can actually have a Dungeons & Dragons game with other actual human beings, including a live dungeon master, dice rolling, 2D maps, character movement, and authentic encounter resolution. And the whole thing. And it, it's it's expensive. You know, it's 40 bucks, and everybody who plays has to buy their own copy. But you can do it, and you no longer have to have to be physically in the same room uh, in order to have an authentic, real game of Dungeons & Dragons. There are, uh, they are not the only ones who are doing that virtual tabletop. Uh, actually, I want, I'm gonna, I hope I don't mess up the name here. I really don't. There was a company, and they were working with Mark Miller of Traveler for a little bit, uh, that were doing a, a virtual tabletop called Grip, and this was back in, in mm-hmm. around 2004, 2005. And it was, it, was, it was clunky because it was new technology. But going to uh, Gen Con last year, I didn't make it this year, but going to Gen Con last year, I saw a lot of really well-done virtual tabletops at a lot of price points. And some were designed that only one person needed to buy the program. That nice. was the dungeon master. Everybody else could download it, and they could run it from their PC or their iPad or their Android. Very nice. Which uh, that that really opens up your game. It really does, and it makes it so that uh, uh, I mean, it lowers the barrier to entry. The problem with the uh, uh, the one I just mentioned is that uh, you know everybody has to have their own copy, and it's forty bucks a throw. It's very but not much. not for uh, this. This version yeah, but he's not talking for the, about. Yeah, not for the one you're talking it about. Would, it could the, ruin family dinners forever. <laughs> it, it, it absolutely could, but no more so than the Game Boy did. And, and mm-hmm. actually, yeah. it's a lot better for the brain than the Game Boy. Uh, so. I don't know. <laughs> well, actually, this, this was, this was um, in my interviews for, uh, and, and the film uh, was called and, and still will be called Dragons in the Basement. Mm-hmm. Um, and. One of the things that we came up with, and this was talking with uh, Mark Miller and, uh, and Mike Stackpole, was the Center for Disease Control. Uh, back, If you remember back in the 80s, there was all the huge scandal about Dungeons & Dragons leading to suicide. Oh, um, yes. There, there was all the whole story of-, of Dallas Egbert, the kid who supposedly disappeared in the steam tunnels under University of Michigan. And ended up killing himself. Well, he's uh, he was a very disturbed young man, and if it hadn't been Dungeons and Dragons, it'd have been something else. But uh, uh, the, actually, uh, Luzaki told that story beautifully. Uh, that particular story, and and that was he didn't go, go into the steam tunnels. Dungeons and Dragons had nothing to do with it. He ran away. One of the things about the, there are several things about Dallas Egbert. He was. Basically, junior high to high school age, 
he was so he was he was a younger student than average, a, a, an absolute genius, but not socially adjusted. Um, so that's hard enough. Throw into the fact that in the mid to late seventies, he's also gay and trying to trying to deal with that. Oh, that's something. That's an aspect of it that was not covered in the original that, news reports when it. Oh, absolutely, and and, uh, and uh, William Deere, who wrote the book, just latched onto the Dungeons and Dragons thing and sold books, and he did everybody a huge disservice uh, to the point that, uh, and, and this was something I had just learned uh, last year, and I want to get her on film if she's willing to do it. Uh, is Dallas Egbert's mother? has been giving speak, uh, public talks where she has come out and said Dungeons & Dragons had nothing to do with her son. There's depression issues, and we need to watch for those. There's mental health, we need, we need to be better about mental health care in this country. And support Which, for gifted children in any case. Right, and, mm. and, and, and there are issues there. And, and because you know, you know, whether, whether you want to blame a certain amount of the gift going hand-in-hand with Asperger's to just... Uh, teachers not knowing how to reach out to somebody who thinks differently. Well, and this was also the genesis of uh, an unbelievable number of associations between Dungeons and Dragons and uh, um, Satanism, Satanism and, and, <laughs> and people have uh, renouncing their religions and, and oh, how oh, Dungeons please. and Dragons was was actually training for witchcraft and all of the other Hokey, uh, hokey pokey yeah. stuff, you know. And, and, people and the, actually trick, believe. The, the, the chick tracks are uh, okay, marvelous okay. comedy if you can detach yourself from the emotion. Uh, but yeah, bothered about Dunstans and Dragons. Mike Stackpole uh, had a lot to say about them. Yeah. Uh, and, and the uh, the suicides he handled really quickly uh, because there was a, supposedly a, a plethora of suicides, and what this turns out to have been is a case of bad journalism. Mm-hmm. Where a kid who had whatever issues killed himself, the parents found the DM's guide, so therefore he must, it must be D and D. Whatever group latched onto that, and they had a rally in another city, and a reporter just grabbed the the details and not bothered to mention that the, the original suicide was actually somewhere else. So one suicide becomes two suicides. Oh yeah, I see. that that happens several times. Um, uh, oh, I cannot remember the guy's name who killed his parents, and and then uh, the defense was he's an orphan. Oh, no, the defense. <laughs> yeah, the defense was a DNT made him do it. Oh great! And, and the, guy, the 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 courts in Oklahoma basically blew that out of the water. And in fact, D and D using as a as an insanity defense has never worked. Well, that's good. That that absolutely is good. It proves that there is common sense in America. Which I, it's it's it similar to a- it's similar to uh, how Doctor Wortham tried to associate uh, uh, all the ills of society to with comic books and and the oh, absolutely. Comic books. It's exactly the same sort of thing, and it's it's like it's it's that. Evil rock and roll. It's the evil comic books. It's the evil Dungeons and Dragons. It's the Walt is going to destroy our society. Mm-hmm. You know that that mindset. There's always been some rabble rouser with that mindset. Ragtime. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and literally, 
if you go back and read stuff from the mid 1800s, the waltz was destroying our morals. Oh, yes, I the know, waltz. right? But yeah. The waltz. A boy and a girl waltz. getting sweaty together, you know. There, there was actually contact I, on more than just the fingertips. Heavens. Might have a hand on her back. <laughs> Shoulder. Oh my God! They, then there might be a bear. Shoulder. Oh. How about devil? How about? Devil. Well, you know, I considering considering the mores at the time, you know, I could see where uh, people would get kind of bent out of shape about that because it was something new and uh, something daring. And so it is with Dungeons and Dragons. It was a, it's a new thing. Uh, well, it was new for its time. Uh, and it is now the foundation of probably a good fourth of our modern entertainment. In very, look, in look at, yeah, look at what our, our, our of our entertainment is influenced by the role playing games in the seventies and eighties. <laughs> well, and it, I think it, this also includes the writings of Terry Pratchett and, and Discworld. I mean, it has oh, a absolutely. very a very Dungeons and Dragonsy sort of uh, approach to world building, um, and you know, and they're elves and dwarves and and uh, mystical creatures of all sorts, orcs. And, 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 you know, uh, George R. R. Martin, one of his first successful projects was something called uh, Wild Cards. And that was based directly off of a role-playing game. That had the feel of something that could have been. Oh, oh, he, he makes no bones about it. They were using uh, Chaosium Superworld. Why are they not making... Well, I guess when Game of Thrones is done, they can, they can license that. That would be a wonderful uh, HBO oh. series. Oh, somebody should do something with it, or even a series of movies. Uh, and maybe I'll talk to George about it. At, 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 because I loved the Wild Cards books. I did too. Uh, I'm a huge fan of the Great and Powerful Turtle. Yes, <laughs> yes, the Great and Powerful Turtle. Uh, which is why when I when I found the turtle in Discworld, it's like, well, yeah, the Great and Powerful Turtle. The I'm turtle moves. <laughs> the turtle moves. Which brings us back to the uh, which brings us back to the documentary. Ooh, cyclical! Uh, oh, I love nice. this. Yes, um, I've done that twice in the last ten minutes. I know that's very exciting. <laughs> well done. <laughs> so, uh, uh, the question uh, that uh, came to my mind is: uh, How did you come to a space where you personally were going to be the one that puts this documentary together? Do you have a background in? A motion picture or television production, or is this something that you 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 came on uh, later on? Um, you know? I have a background. Uh, most of it has been very very low budget stuff. Uh, again, uh, when I was in film school, actually, is when I, uh, Dave and I first started. Dave Arneson and I first started talking. So he, that's why he approached me initially to uh, work on Dragons of the Basement. Uh, in in the interim time, I've also been doing things like uh, the uh, Masterworks miniature painting video sets for Dark Sword Miniatures. Oh, oh what a good! Well, that needs doing, but it has to be uh, done by someone who knows how to shoot a video. You can't. Everybody and, can't be, you know. Yeah, and and, and, and uh, Jim Ludwig of Dark Sword was absolutely brilliant in this. In that, and, and we've we've had a learning curve because you know when your frame is an inch high. Yes. Uh, oh, jeez. It, 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 there are some challenges to shooting that I had. You don't learn in film school. <laughs> well, especially, I mean, you know, you're working with a macro lens the entire time. Working with a macro lens, and, and one of our painters, a uh, wonderful painter, but she's very kinetic, and she does not hold her miniatures 
uh, still. She's used to leaning back with her arms free hanging in the air, and her movements are very wild, but she's very precise in her painting and does beautiful work. You can't film that. No. <laughs> you absolutely can't film that. So we literally had to work out a brace thing against the table and strap her into place. <laughs> Good luck with that. Well, another another way around it would have been to say, and this is this is this step, and here's what I did, and here's why I did this, and here's how it was done. Yeah, and, but you don't want to teach know, people but, that her method because that's very. Well, um, but you're watching you're watching her do it on directly on camera, so you're learning. I, I, it will, anyway. I will I will say that there is a value to watching the paint actually go on the figure and watching mm-hmm. the brush strokes as they happen. And, and I mean, it made a difference for me going back and watching them. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, oh, that's how you do that. I've been painting since 1978. And, and I ne- was never able to get that effect. And now I know why. Things, yeah, things I, like I get that. it. And, yeah. and um, actually, we did do that with one of the segments uh, for Jessica Rich, which is the last video we did. Uh, she does really beautiful freehand work and creates recreates renaissance paintings in like 25 millimeter scale oh, and in fact she did that she did a figure stuff. and i think it was for george george rr R. martin of a uh, pre-raphaelite knight and all the uh, horse blankets and stuff were done as tapestry mm. absolutely bo- gorgeous work and she spent like a hundred and some hours painting this this figure it, and it's worth every minute it's, it's such a beautiful thing to look at so we decided we were going to do a freehand segment for the last video, and she did a uh, a cloak with leaf patterns and a green man, and it's like, okay, this is going to take 20 hours to film. We don't have that. So we ended up just sending, you know, starting it, doing the prep, then sending her home with the uh, with the miniature. And a tape recorder, or a voice recorder, and just getting pictures of each step, and mm-hmm. then editing all that together. But I, I wouldn't do that very often. Uh, it makes for boring video. Well, it's it's when you have something that takes twenty hours uh, that you're pretty much forced into that position. And the other the other way around it is to use accelerated video. You know, but but it, in so doing, you also lose. Uh, the uh, the technique in a lot yeah. of cases. Yeah. You can't see exactly how something's done. You can see that it's being done, but that's all you can see. Well, you can if it's narrated, right? You know, see where we put the the outline first and then we fill in this part. And, you know, with a good voiceover, that could work. And, and Jessica, to her credit, did a really, really good job uh, narrating and filling in the blanks. Uh, so I'm actually, even though that's not a technique I, I would have preferred to have used, yeah, I think that mm-hmm. that that module turned out very well, and this where, was. Where can we find these videos? Uh, uh, Dark Sword Miniatures has them on their website. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know they're available in in uh, game stores. Now this is uh, this is some pretty cool stuff. I mean, I've I've watched people do uh, miniature painting, and I had friends in high school who uh, whose hobby it was to paint Napoleonic miniatures. I have friends who are quite middle-aged now who paint miniatures. <laughs> well, and, and actually that's, you know, I, I learned uh, with toothpicks and testers paint, mm-hmm. and, which is an absolutely horrible way to do it. But I was quickly 
corrected by uh, somebody who was used to working in in painting acrylics and managed to make acrylic paintings look like oil paintings. And the guy was very skilled. Mm-hmm. And he he was a, a huge Napoleonics painter. Mm-hmm. And uh, he taught me a lot of a lot of the technique that I use, which is n- now considered very old school. Uh, some of the stuff these these people are doing uh, with with the inks and shades are just amazing. The quality of the miniatures has improved so dramatically. Oh, absolutely! Uh, since since yeah. the beginning, I mean, it used to be uh, uh, the miniatures used to be uh, hand carved in jeweler's wax, and then you do lost wax casting, and you could only make so many copies. And uh, and now it's the the blanks are are three D printed, and, and uh, the precision is. Um, Amazing, and you well, can get the likenesses of people's faces on these yeah. twenty well, millimeters. E- even the quality of the sculpting has gotten better. The the, the initial wax sculpts has gotten mm-hmm. better, and that's because the artists have had to pick up their game. Mm-hmm. They've they've had to step up the game because the production qual- the production techniques. You've got guys that are casting the figures that actually understand metallurgy and mm-hmm. how the heat and pressure work on the rotocasters. Um, I, I spent. A couple of years working for a uh, military miniatures manufacturer, uh, making tanks and planes during the Gulf War, the first Gulf War. Mm-hmm. Uh, I bet those so are I, good big sellers. Oh my God! Yes, it was um, actually uh, one of my high points. With that is all during the initial Gulf War, all three of the local network affiliates had a map with little miniatures uh, of, of the Gulf region. Oh, and uh, the company I worked for actually produced and painted most of the miniatures, and we made at least one of the maps. And I worked on I worked oh, on the one map. Okay, wow, it's a small planet. Oh yeah, it's, it's all very kind of cool stuff. And oh, you see, I would have wanted one of the tanks to send to my the tanker I was riding to. <laughs> Damn it! Uh, actually, uh, I, I can remember we would frequently get things like you know it, it's the end of the day. Uh, just before the UPS truck comes, and it's like, oh my God, here's a, here's a mold. We need 160 uh, M1 Abrams. They're, <laughs> now, they're going, yeah, they're going out to Fort Bragg as soon as you can cast them. Oh, oh that's cool. Pa- painted or not? <laughs> uh, no, not painted oh, at all. Oh, not Fort Bragg just wanted them tomorrow. Oh wow. Uh, we did have there was a uh, a, a hobby store. In Tel Aviv, that had placed a uh, very large order shortly mm. before things got interesting, uh, mm. and and yeah, so we and, and of, of course, uh, being gamer geeks, uh, the the military learned to expedite orders by telling us behind the scenes stories, you know, stuff stuff that's harmless, but you know, how many Scud missiles had been captured from the uh, from the Iraqis and by who. So we get some of those stories, and it's like, oh, cool. <laughs> nice. So yeah. what's your observation uh, regarding the fan art and the uh, 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 the various uh, things that fans have made about the Discworld series? Uh, are there are there a lot of miniatures and models and, and costumes and, and uh, other other art forms that uh, that the books have inspired you know there's there's an amazing array of stuff and this gets back to why i think the discworld fans are special 
Um, one of the first things that caught my eye at the uh, Madison Convention in 2011 was there was a young lady who was battling several illnesses, so she had a lot of time on her hands. So she decided to breed through uh, selective selective breeding a mm-hmm. uh, eight-petaled lily modeled after something in the book. Oh, my. <clears throat> you have to re- remind me what that refers to. Well, uh, part of it refers to the, the octavo of the book. Oh, so it, be- okay. it became the octavo li- lily. Oh, nice. Okay. And it's it was, the magic it, number I mean, is eight, right. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it was a gorgeous flower, but then you realize, wait, she'd done the selective breeding to get this. That's dedication. It is. <laughs> that is dedication. And I've seen some wonderful hand sculpts. I've seen some, some very complex sculpts, some wonderful paintings. Um, uh, one of my favorites is somebody did uh, the whole Discworld turtle and all uh, out of Lego. Yes, yes, I, I remember uh, <laughs> contributing toward a you know a crowdfunding, or or uh, no wait it was a petition it's a petition to put it on the Lego web the official Lego website yeah and, and that is that is absolutely that brilliant. was awesome and, and uh, hand knitted and crocheted feagles seem to abound across the internet yep I once saw um, I want feagles in my garden I I once saw a model of. Uh, the the disc world on the turtles and the you know with the elephants made entirely out of bread. It was a baked oh. good. Oh, cool! I've seen I've seen a number of cakes. Uh, yeah, I mean, and you can go up on Pinterest and, and search the web, and you will find some really really cool stuff. We captured a few of those. Uh, really, not very many at all. Uh, those in in our uh, Kickstarter video. Um, I'll bet we, there'll be more at the convention. Uh, there will be a lot. Uh, Patty has put together quite the display. I'm, I'm anxious to see it. I'm excited to see it. Um, I'm, I'm excited about getting it. And I promised her I would get all of it on video. So she will have a copy for preservation uh, to show all her hard work. And I, and, I, and I think hard work like that should be acknowledged because there, there's people that put a lot of energy and love in, into their costumes. And... Uh, yeah, you, you don't see that sort of devotion every day. No, you sure don't. And it's it's that kind of devotion, I think, that uh, that really glues all of the uh, the Pratchett fans together. I mean, it's it's yeah. Every every single one of these books is kind of magical in its own way, and you can pick up. Uh, it, it helps if you read the stories in order, but you don't have to. And uh, uh, Pratchett made the the whole world welcoming so that uh, so that you didn't feel like oh geez this is you know book number 47 in the series or whatever it was and i've got to read 1 through 46 before this makes sense no it didn't it it didn't ha- it was part of the same world but it didn't have that kind of close uh tight knit um setup he made it very welcoming and he did it in such a way and with such wit that it's it doesn't read like pablum it it doesn't insult your intelligence it it has very sly humor and for those of us with a very dark sense of humor he had a very dark sense of humor at times and he wasn't had the dark sense he had the dark sense of humor he had, excuse me I'll have to <coughs> cough 
and move back from the microphone a little bit and get back to it. Well, considering that Death was the only character who was in all the books, I think that uh, he had a dark sense of humor all the time. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Actually, that, 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 that's one of my favorite personal stories is, um, uh, as with any convention, there's going to be some backstage drama. And uh, I was exposed to quite a bit uh, being being the person who was running programming at the convention. I got to got to see a lot. Yeah, hey, fun. <laughs> and um, the, my my joke was whenever it's like, how do you deal with these people? It's like I know where all the dumpsters and all the targets are. Yeah, right. So I was like, you know, you just hide the bodies in the target dumpster, no problem. <laughs> And then well, that was that was a joke from the store I used to work at. Well, and the other the other aspect of this is that uh, it's hard to get um, you know beyond a beyond general appreciation of a particular uh, author's work or a particular TV show or something like that. It's very difficult to get fans to agree on anything. It's often been said that you could line up all the fans in the world end to end and you still wouldn't reach a conclusion. <laughs> but uh, absolutely. Absolutely. So but, it's 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 the the problem of of herding cats to get a convention uh, to run smoothly is is exacerbated by the fact that every one of these people is really uh, the probability of of it being composed entirely of genius level intellects is very high, <laughs> and with that comes independence. And with yeah, that, <laughs> they don't they don't always play well with others. No, they don't. Uh, and, and the nice thing is, is the Discworld fans. By and large, do play well with each other, um, but uh, no, it was it was after the convention in the bar. Uh, one of the people who had helped and watched me work gave Imagine me a gift, and it was it was something small. She gave me a Target gift card. Okay, and I I just looked at her and said, "Oh, thank you. You've just given me an alibi." <laughs> <laughs> and, and and Terry heard that because he'd heard the jokes about the Target dumpster, and he saw uh-huh. the card, and he heard me say that. And I'd never seen him laugh so hard in my life. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Oh, that's funny. Um, but that was, that was another neat Terry moment came from that same evening. Uh, the, the bar was reasonably crowded, but there was one large table. There was only one woman sitting at. And uh, she was uh, dressed as Angua from, guard, from the guards. Oh, cool. Uh, and she did a beautiful job. Um. And we asked if we could sit there, and she was ready to move. It's like, oh, Terry and his friends are going to sit here. So she was ready to move. It's like, no, 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 stay. We're, we're, you know. Through the course of the conversation, we find out that she actually uh, was a policewoman in uh, Toronto. I was sure you were going to say really was a werewolf. Guards, guards. Yeah. My. So she, she was really a cop. And as soon as we found that out, Terry loved talking to policemen. Uh-huh. He uh, must have I, a soft I, spot for them. He he I, clearly knows the mindset. Or <laughs> before he started writing books. I don't know that for sure, but I thought I'd heard that somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um and so we mentioned that to Terry and suddenly we moved her down to the end of the ter- table so she was sitting next to Terry. Almost oh, a major they, year. They were lost to the whole to the rest of the conversation. They, they were ignoring the rest of us in, in a very intense conversation. A lot of fun. We made sure we got a picture because she, her, her workmates didn't believe her, so we had to send a picture. It's like, there she is, sitting next to the author she went to admire and not hope to at least get a, a signature from, but nothing else. 
and she got half hour to an hour of his of his undivided attention. Oh, that's marvelous! What a marvelous and, story! Oh, and, and she just—I mean, so the the love went both ways. Terry was devoted to his fans. He, he, I mean, yeah, they put put his bread on—you know—they put bread on his table, but more than that, he loved them, and that was very cool to watch. And again, I I haven't seen that in other authors, at least not to that degree. He invited them into his world, and uh, and it was a genuine invitation, and he was happy to have them there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, let's see. This is me going up. Uh, yeah, I'm. I'm making another note. Make another minutes. What? What? Where are we in our minute count? We're at forty-six minutes and fifty seconds. Okay. I have, I'm making notes as I go every time. Oh, I, yeah. Every time we go up or screw up, I have to make a note of when it was so that I can go back and edit and not. Have it makes to the editing process go much faster. Oh, I, God, I, I didn't do that when I was doing my podcast, so I had to go back and listen to everything. Well, we do that too, but yeah, I've got this. Um, I use Audacity, and has it has this time? Uh, you can time compress it a little. Yeah, bit. time multiplier. I can. Play it back at uh, 1.8 times normal speed, and, and listen it looks to the whole sounds thing. like he's talking to Alvin, but it's all but right. I can catch yeah. the boo boos and, and the mistakes. I, I, and I, I it is a it. wonderful program, oh, yeah. I we love it. Okay, anyway, let's see. Um, getting back to the Kickstarter, yes. Um, what kind of stretch goals do you think you might be doing? Um, if we can get get money, uh, a it's going to influence whether or not we can add the option of Blu-ray, mm-hmm. because right now uh, everything is priced at doing DVDs because it's the lowest common denominator, and it's doing region-free DVDs, so I can send them anywhere. Oh, good. Uh, which which is very cool because a large chunk of my support is coming from the United Kingdom and Australia. Oh, I imagine and, so. And the Australians have been wonderful. Uh, as a matter of fact, I, I was uh, talking with uh, with Rob Wilkins, who was Terry's business manager, and he was excited to hear that the Australians were interested. And they were they were some of the first to start promoting our campaign on uh, Facebook and their individual websites. So I'm, I'm I'm hoping to find a good way to thank those guys. They're wonderful. Nulis anxietas, eh? No worries. <laughs> yes. Um. So yeah, it, it's what we can do. Can we license some music? Can we get some some interviews from the BBC? Uh, I have somebody who has volunteered to donate some footage from one of the early Hugo, earlier Hugo Awards that Terry was a presenter at. Oh, good. As long as we give due credit, well, of course, of course, absolutely. Yes. Uh, I'm huge on that because I, I can't pay anybody. <laughs> uh, <Yes. laughs> you know, if if money is there. I might be able to pay people in the form of a gift certificate to McDonald's, but <laughs> or Target, or, tar- or Target. <laughs> yes, <laughs> good plan. <laughs> They're everywhere. John Kentner, thank you for joining us on this evening's episode of the Event Horizon here on Krypton Radio. And absolute uh, pre- pleasure to be here, and thank you for having me. And, and uh, we wish you the best of luck on the Kickstarter. Uh, could you tell us the name of the Kickstarter so that our listeners can find it? The name of the Kickstarter is The Turtle Moves, Remembering Terry Pratchett. 
And that's the one you need to find. And it is on Kickstarter and not Indiegogo. It, it is Correct. Kickstarter. Okay, great. Thanks again for joining and us. And we will see you at Sasquan. Absolutely. I count on it. You have just heard episode 110 of Krypton Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for August 8th, 2015. Our guest has been John Kentner, the driving force and the producer behind the fandom documentary The Turtle Moves, Remembering Terry Pratchett. Its Kickstarter campaign will be active until August 12th, so there's still time to participate in the stretch goals for the fundraising campaign. Your hosts have been Gene Turnbow and Susan L. Fox. This episode will air again on August 9th, 2015 at 4 p.m. Pacific and at various additional times throughout the coming week. See the Krypton Radio website for showtimes in your area. Once all the airtimes have passed, you will find this episode and others as downloads on kryptonradio.com and on iTunes and Stitcher as podcasts. If you are an author or other creator and would like to be on the show, please contact our production manager, Kat Carter, at katcarter at kryptonradio.com. If you would like to become a patron of the Geeky Arts, you can do so for as little as $1 a month. Visit patreon.com slash kryptonradio to join the Krypton Radio family of patrons. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The science officer was played by Mark Schermeister. The engineer was played by Christian D. McGuire. The navigator was Christine Cherry. And the captain was voiced by legendary science fiction writer Larry Niven. This program and its contents, except where provided by others, are copyright 2015 by Krypton Media Group Incorporated. The Event Horizon. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi. <laughs>